Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Thank you for everyone who had a part in organizing the service, the music and the video that we watched and the verses that we read and everything. It's wonderful to worship together with you today. There's a few things I probably should say. The polish thing, I, I get that a lot. It's a funny thing. I don't know why I am an, aren't a better speaker than I am, but I was speaking at a missions conference just like two weeks ago, and at the end, you know, people are saying their goodbyes, and a young man, just a graduate from Bible college, he was like, you're not the most polished speaker, but you're a good speaker. Okay. <laughs> One of the things I should probably say, I think a lot of you know this story, maybe you don't. We were in Poland, we've been in Poland 16 years, we were in Poland about 10 years, and we lost a lot of our financial support. Churches that had been supporting us stopped supporting us, and it was about half of our finances. And you just, you know, if you lose 10% of your finances or 15 or something, you can kind of cut corners here and there and go on, but we were at a place that, you know, we wouldn't be able to continue being missionaries if some large chunk of this money wasn't made up. And a few of our supporting churches, three or four, just started giving us a lot more money, which allowed us to stay on the mission field. And one of those churches is you guys here. You're extremely generous to us, too too generous to us. Thank you for your financial sacrifices, which allow us to do church planting in Poland. What we're going to do today is look at the way... Jesus worked in the disciples' lives in this passage. He's obviously training them to be his ambassadors. He knows that he has a couple years with them, that he's going to die and return to his Father in heaven, and 11 of these 12 men are going to stay on earth and preach the gospel. And so he has a period of time to train them to change their minds, to change their worldview, to, to change everything about them, so that they will be able to be his ambassadors when he's gone. And praise the Lord for the word of God, that we can read what he did to train them. So we now, 2,000 years later, as we are called to be followers of Christ, we can kind of go through the same training course that they went through because we can see how he trained them. And we can also pass that on to the next generation. We can see how Christ trained those 12 disciples, and we can use that as we train our children and young people. Training and Jesus working to change the disciples, that's always painful. You don't go, you don't change your mind and change your behavior in easily. That's always going to be a difficult process. And this chapter is a bit difficult. Jesus puts them in a boat. He sends them out across the lake. He full well knows what they're going to encounter as they go across that lake. He knows the storm is coming. He puts them in a boat, he sends them out there, knowing that's going to be difficult for them. And he says, you're on your own on this one, I'm staying here. And he sends them out. So um, let's start there. That's in verse, we're going to start in verse 22. So that's Matthew chapter 14, we'll start in verse 22. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a spirit. And they cried out in fear, grown men crying out. And straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. Let's stop there. 
And what we're going to talk about is the holiness of Christ. The word holy is one of those words that we use all the time, and yet we might not understand it as well as we should. The first thing we think of when we hear the word holy is the fact that Christ lived a perfect life pure from any stain of sin. We immediately think of the fact that he was perfectly obedient to his father in all things, never doing one thing that his father forbid and doing all the commands that his father commanded him to do. However, the best word we can use to describe the fact that Jesus lived a perfect life is not holiness, but his righteousness. When we think about the perfect life of Christ, we should say that's the righteousness of Christ. The main way that we use the word holy in the Bible is to describe something that's been set apart from the ordinary. It's unique. It's not common. Let's think about the ways that the Bible uses the word holy. God has commanded us to make one day in seven holy. So this can't be a sinless day. We're to live all seven days avoiding sin. He's not saying you can sin six days but make one day holy. It's a day that's been set apart from the other days. It's not a common day. There was holy bread in the temple. It's not sinless bread. It was made in the same bakery as all the other bread. It's just simply set apart for a special purpose. One tribe in 12 was holy, set apart for God to use them in his plan. One holy nation. We know the story of that nation. It's far from a sinless nation. When it's called one holy nation in all of, in, of all the nations, it's not this one sinless nation, but this one nation that God has set apart from all the others working through that one nation, set apart for a special purpose, for his plan. We see Christ's holiness in this passage. In other words, he's not like other men. He walks on water. There are laws of science that explain why a boat floats and why a rock sinks. And those laws are universal. They apply to all of us. But the laws of science didn't apply to Jesus. The disciples saw him break those laws, and they were afraid. They imagined that they were seeing a ghost. Holiness makes us uncomfortable. We like things that we know. We're comfortable with people that we know well. When we first meet a person, we can be a bit uncomfortable with them for a while until we can put them in a category. It might not be fair to put people in categories, but it's helpful for us. Putting people in categories is a kind of shortcut. To actually get to know someone takes many hours of conversation and asking questions and listening. But if we can figure out what country they're from, what sort of school they graduated from, what sort of family they're from, what kind of occupation they have, we can put them in a box, we more or less have figured out who they are, and we feel more comfortable around them. The disciples in this story are freaked out. They thought they knew what category Jesus fit in. They know what town he's from. They know the way he was educated. They know who his parents were and his siblings. But now they see him walking on the water. And they simply don't have a category for that. Their eyes are being opened to the holiness of Christ. He is not like us. Jesus did this on purpose. He set up this whole scenario to open their eyes, to work in their lives, so that they would start to see his holiness. Our prayer must be that God would do this in our lives. That he would open our eyes 
to see His holiness. This must be our desire, that we would have our eyes opened to see Him as He is. There is nothing in this world that we can compare Him to. That's why we're commanded to make no image of Him, because no image is adequate. The most beautiful piece of art by the most gifted artist in this world would still be blasphemous. It takes the image of God and turns it into something far too base, far too ugly. The best picture of God we have in this whole world is mankind. Men and women have been created in the image of God. We are the best picture of God that's been given in this universe. However, saying that we're the best picture of God available is not the same thing as saying God is like us. And this is one of our greatest temptations. We are tempted to think that God is like us. In other words, treat him as unholy. Teacher and pretty well-known theologian in America today, R.C. Sproul, is well-known for claiming that the most urgent need in the American church is that we would see the holiness of God. See him as Isaiah saw him, high and lifted up. We must fall down before him. We must tremble before God. The disciples in this story are terrified, and rightfully so. Oh, that God would open our eyes to see him, to tremble before him, to fear him. This is not a new problem, not a problem that showed up in the 21st century. Take a second to go to the 50th Psalm. Psalm 50 is written to people who were faithfully going through the motions of worshiping God. They hadn't stopped going to church. They hadn't stopped being involved or stopped giving sacrificial offerings. But they had forgotten the holiness of God. And as we'll read, God is not pleased with them. The 50th Psalm, I'll start reading from verse 7. God says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings, which have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house or goats out of thy folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains. The wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. And call on me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. So he's saying something like this. He's saying, you think I need your sacrifices? You think I need you to serve me? I'm not like that. I own everything. I don't have any needs. I don't call on you in the day of trouble so you will deliver me. But you call on me in the day of trouble and I deliver you. You don't serve me. I serve you. And you can do nothing to pay me back. What you can do and what I require is that you be thankful. And let's look at verse 21. These things hast thou done, and I kept silent. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But I will reprove thee 
and set them in order before thine eyes. So he's laying a charge before them. He's saying that for years I've been quiet, and now I'm bringing the charge before you, and I'm laying it out before you so you can see what the problem is that I have with you. What's the problem? What's the charge he's laying before them? That they treat him as if he were like them. In other words, they've forgotten that God is holy. This was Israel's problem 3,000 years ago, and it's our problem today. It's my problem. I would propose to you that it's your problem. Let us see him as he is. Let us tremble before him. If someone were to ask you this morning, what is your biggest need in your Christian life? Where's the biggest problem in your Christian life? I think that most of us would answer that question thinking about some action that we should be doing that we're currently not doing well. Our thoughts would be something like, I should love people more. I should study my Bible more. I should be more generous. I should stop giving in to that certain temptation that continues to bother me. However, I'd like to propose to you that our biggest problem is not on the level of doing one thing more and doing another thing less. But I propose that our problem is on a whole level deeper than what I'm doing or not doing. My problem is that I don't see God as clearly as I should. I think it's helpful to think about it in this way. Our view of God is the root, and our actions are the fruit. My view of God is the root, and our actions, my actions, what I do in a day and a week, are the fruit. I recently heard two illustrations from a pastor named John Snyder that I didn't know before that. Two illustrations that I think will help us understand this concept of the holiness of God. First of all, this first illustration, imagine a man goes out on his back porch on a Saturday morning with his newspaper and his cup of coffee. He's going to sit down there and enjoy his Saturday morning. And as he sits down on his back porch and looks over his beautiful green lawn, he notices that it's blemished with little yellow spots all over, dandelions that have grown up across his backyard. And maybe he's a bit OCD, but he can't sit there and enjoy his newspaper with the dandelions in his backyard. So he sets down his newspaper and his coffee. He goes inside and he gets a pair of scissors. And he spends his Saturday clipping off all the dandelions in his backyard. Come Saturday evening, he gathers his wife and kids around. They light up the grill and enjoy a wonderful Saturday evening in their beautifully manicured green back lawn. If he didn't get down and dig out the roots to those dandelions... All he's done is snip off the heads. He's really only just spinning his wheels. He's going to have all that to do next Saturday again. We must get down to the root. I think the disciples' view of Jesus was slowly changing over time. But Jesus orchestrated this situation so that their eyes would be open to see his holiness. And I imagine that at this moment, when they see him walking on the water, their eyes are opened in some great way to see his holiness. If we, year after year, continue to battle in our Christian life on the level of the actions that we're should be removing from our Christian life and the actions that should, we should be adding to our Christian life, we can be spinning our wheels for year after year. We must get down deeper and have our eyes opened to see God as he is, which will almost automatically change our actions. The second illustration that uh, this John Snyder uses is uh, comparing 
two views of the Christian life. This first one starts like this. Imagine that your view of God is small. You rarely think of Him as you go through the day. You're not in awe of Him. If your view of God is small, that will have a direct impact on your view of self. When your view of God is small, your view of self will automatically be quite large. You'll be thinking of your goals, your plans, what you hope to obtain in this life, what you hope to achieve. You'll be thinking about your happiness. When your view of God is small, your view of self will automatically be great. When your view of self is so large, this affects your view of sin. You'll see sin like this. Imagine that it's like a train. You get on this train, and it's going to take you to bad places. You start sinning, and that's going to lead to consequences in your life. Pain and suffering, poor relationships with the people around you. And ultimately, sin leads to death and hell. So, sin is bad because of what it does to you. It causes some sort of pain and suffering in your life. This making Christianity all about you. Salvation, on the other hand, is good because, once again, what it does for you. It promises you a reward and a friend who will never leave you. Now, let's flip that whole situation around and imagine that your view of God is big. That you are in awe of Him as you go through the day. That He is on the forefront of your mind. When you're in awe of God and you see Him as He is, high and lifted up, that will automatically have an effect on how you view yourself. When Isaiah saw God, it was a natural response for him to fall down on the ground before the king of kings. His eyes were open to see himself correctly. In other words, small. This will affect your view of sin. Sin is no longer just something that affects you and your happiness. But sin is a thief of God's glory. Because when we sin, we are glorifying something other than God. Our sin has stolen something that rightfully belongs to our Master and Lord. This will affect our view of salvation. Salvation is what makes us willing and able to live for the glory of God. At the moment of salvation, our hearts are changed so that we want to live for Him. We are saved to good works. And at the moment of salvation, we're given the Holy Spirit who empowers us to live lives for the glory of God. We feel gratitude for Him and we live for Him. So you see that salvation is not just about you. And all of the Christian life is not primarily about me and you, but about Jesus Christ and what He's done for us and for His glory. And those two extremely different views hinge on our view of God. Oh, that God would open our eyes to see His holiness. That we would tremble before Him, as the disciples do in this story. If we are going to have an ever-growing vision of God, it will come through the Word of God. God has chosen to reveal Himself to mankind. He's a God who speaks. 
We can know him, and we will know him through his word. Let's read the next two verses in this story. (coughs) Matthew 14, verses 28 and 29. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. I propose to you that these verses teach that a view of the holiness of God will lead to radical obedience. A view of the holiness of God will lead to radical obedience. Peter steps out of the boat. Do you remember young David's thought process before he walks out on the battlefield to face Goliath? His thought process was not self-focused. His mind isn't going, well... My battle training is equal to or greater than his. My weapons are smaller, but I can use them quicker, so I've got the advantage there. I know this terrain a bit better than he does, so I can volunteer to do this. That is not how it went. David knew God. He knew God's character. He knew that God cares about his glory And he's going to punish those who mock him. David knew that when any old Israelite would step out from those lines and go face Goliath, God was going to fight for him. He didn't walk out there because he was confident in his ability, in his preparation, in his training, in his weapons. Not because he was brave but because he had a clear view of God. And that view of God led to what everyone else looking on would have named radical obedience. I think the story we have before us is just as shocking, if not even more, than that story of David stepping out there to face Goliath. In our story, Jesus says, come, And Peter steps out of a perfectly good boat. The reason for his obedience is obvious. He's focused on Jesus and the fact that Jesus is walking on the water. There's no way that he's obeying that command if he is focused on himself and his abilities. A focus on the holiness of God will lead to radical obedience. As a pastor... I have the privilege of often doing counseling. And I enjoy meeting with people and trying to help them through the difficulties in this world. And quite often in counseling, as we're talking about some complicated and painful and difficult situation, it becomes obvious to both of us in the room that part of the problem is sin on behalf of the person that's explaining their situation. And sometimes when I ask them, Why aren't you taking care of your part of this? Why have you allowed your sin to go on in this whole situation? And from time to time, the answer will be, well, I know that I should be obedient to everything that God is saying, but don't you see how in my situation, obedience would just be nonsense? Don't you see how in my situation, obedience to God would make everything worse? And then they go on to explain having sometimes completely logical 
explanations for why obedience doesn't work in their situation. So, let's now use that going back to Peter. What are the logical conclusions to Peter stepping out of that boat? He sinks, his lungs then fill up with water, and he dies. All science, all history of mankind explains that that's how that story ends. But it doesn't. The rational outcome of Moses telling Pharaoh to let all his slaves go doesn't end well for Moses. The rational outcome to marching around Jericho seven times in one day is just leg cramps the next morning. The logical conclusion to Daniel praying illegally in front of his window is that he dies in the lion's den. That he says, I'm willing to die to be obedient to God. And and he dies. The logical conclusion to young Esther walking into the throne room of the king uncalled for is that she dies. And we can go on and on. Of course you have logical conclusions to why obedience to God doesn't work for you. Of course you can think through why you can't be financially generous to the church. Why you can't fulfill the responsibilities given to a husband. Why in your situation you can't fulfill the responsibilities given to a wife, to a child. Of of course we can logically make reasons for why we can't be obedient to God. But just obey Him and see what he might be pleased to do. Let's go on to verses 30 and 31. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? It says, When he saw the wind, he was afraid. In what way is the author using the word saw? It it can't be possible that at this point in the story is the first time when Peter notices that there's wind and that there's a storm. The author is using the word saw to point out to us a change in Peter's focus. Where he was focused on Jesus for a period of time and stepped out of the boat he now turns his attention to the circumstances that he's in. Instead of focusing on the fact that Jesus had said, come, Peter turns his attention onto the difficult circumstances. And I would like to point out that these are extremely dangerous circumstances. This is not the story of Peter making a mountain out of a molehill. His circumstances really are dire He's trying to walk on water across the lake in the middle of a storm. This moment of fear is not just Peter being dramatic. He's not exaggerating. This circumstance would lead any of us to fear. Nevertheless, Jesus treats his fear as sin. Jesus doesn't use the word fear when he repeats back to Peter what happened. He uses two different words. Little faith and doubt, verse 31. 
Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? If Jesus isn't okay with Peter feeling fear in this situation, then there must literally be no circumstances in which it's okay for Christians to fear. Listen to what God in his word has said about fear. I'll read a list here of verses. Most of them are commands. God says, Be careful or anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. It is my own peace that I give you. I do not give it as the world does. Do not be worried and upset. Do not be afraid. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Now this is what the Lord says. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Tell everyone who is discouraged, be strong and don't be afraid. God is coming. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? God says, For I am the Lord your God, who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, Do not fear. I will help you. Do not be afraid. For I myself will help you, declares the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. And the list could go on and on. Let me read just one more. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So, after all those verses that Christians should not live in fear, it we see that Christians should live with a sort of fear. We should live with a healthy fear of God and God alone. Scottish Baptist preacher <coughs> Oswald Chambers wrote these well-known words. The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas, if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. A focus on the holiness of God will lead to radical obedience. Obeying the commands of Christ, no matter how dangerous that may seem to everyone looking on. And let's end with verses 32 and 33. And when they were come into the ship, that is Peter and Jesus, and when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased, and then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, of a truth, thou art the Son of God. So it ends with worship. They worship Jesus. The disciples saw the holiness of Christ, and it led to three fruits in their lives. They feared him, 
radical obedience and doxology, worship. It seems to me that in evangelical Christianity, we have kind of two camps. There are those in evangelical Christianity who focus on obedience. They focus on Jesus being the leader of an army, and we are his servants, and it's our duty to follow him into battle, our duty to obey. They don't talk much about praise and worship. In fact, they don't seem very comfortable with these intimate terms used in the Bible, that we are the bride of Christ. They seem much more comfortable calling God the Lord of hosts. But there is another group in evangelical Christianity which is almost the opposite. They have a great focus on praise and doxology and worship. And they seem to be comfortable with an intimate relationship with the God who created the universe. But in practice, they are not as disciplined as they should be, as we are called to be as disciples of Jesus Christ. The truth is, there is no reason for us to choose between these two camps. In this passage, we see that disciples of Christ worship Him, and disciples of Christ radically obey. Let us see Jesus for who He is. Fall down before Him. Radically obey Him faithfully while offering Him joyful praise. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this story that you've given us. Thank you that you are speaking, God, that you've given us your word, that we can read and know for sure how you taught your disciples the lessons that you poured into their life to open their eyes to the truth so then they could go out and be your ambassadors after your death. Lord, you worked in their hearts, and it was a bit of a difficult lesson to open their eyes to see your holiness. Lord, although we know that that may involve some danger in asking that you do that in our lives, it is our desire, God, that you open our eyes to see you for who you are. We pray, God, that you would work in our hearts, that we would know you more, that we would tremble before you, that we would have a healthy kind of fear of you that doesn't cause us to run away from you, but causes us to study your word and know your commands and understand you better. And that (coughs) because of that fear of you, we would live in radical obedience. Help us, Lord, to obey, even when at times it just doesn't seem logical. Help us to have faith, to trust in you, when our minds say that your word isn't best. And God, I pray that you'll do work in our hearts, that we'll be a a people on whose lips is thanksgiving and praise and doxology all the time. That we wouldn't be a complaining people. God, help us not to focus on um, the things that we could easily complain about. Help us to see around us your good works and your kindness to us and Help us to be a people who are um, quick to be thankful, quick to praise, quick to lift up your name. Help us to live out these lessons this week and in our lives. Help us where we are weak, that through your Holy Spirit you would empower us. We ask these things in Jesus' name.